0: Welcome to the Pre Construction Podcast. My name is Gareth McGlynn, and this podcast is brought to you by Niche Specialist Staffing Partners. In this podcast, I am on a mission to break down the importance of pre construction and estimating within commercial construction. During the series, we will speak with innovative estimators and pre construction disruptors on how to build a better world for us all. We are very thankful that the Pre Construction podcast is sponsored by Beck Technology. Let's hear a few words now from their fearless leader and president, Stuart Carroll.
1: Hey everyone, I'm Stuart Carroll. I'm the president at Beck Technology. We are based in Dallas, Texas, and we are a pre-construction software company. We were founded in 1996, and we've really been focused on the world of pre-construction. We believe that pre-construction is where the biggest decisions that impact the outcome of a project occur, and we believe that through the use of technology, we can enable our users to make better, more informed pre-construction decisions, the net result of which is to make the world a better place. We're excited to uh, announce our partnership with Niche, and one of the things that really excites me is bringing pre-construction professionals the opportunity to get certified in our latest uh, product, Destiny Estimator. It's our belief that if we can help you understand how integrated pre-construction and pre-construction data lifecycle can benefit your business, Um, it will ultimately improve the pre-construction services that you bring to your customers. And we'd like to uh, announce that we're gonna be releasing this at the end of Q1, and it's available to anybody that's a friend of Niche. Good morning,
0: Clayton. It's Gareth McGlynn, how
2: are you? I am doing fine, Gareth, and you?
0: Very well, thank you. Thanks for coming on the Preconstruction Podcast. It's nice to have you.
2: Glad to be here.
0: Good. I've been, uh, I've been chasing you for a, for a while now. Um, we've been in to and fro uh, for a couple of reasons. One reason is your extensive experience in design build, which I'm fascinated about. Um, and the other reason is your ability and throughout your career, you've stayed at such a high level um, within a multitude of, of sectors. So um, was the design build, I know that you've been in it for for quite a while, was that always a a conscious kind of area that you wanted to get into even when you were studying?
2: Uh, Yes, it was. Um, When I was in college and learning the construction engineering trade, uh, I started out as a civil engineer in school and I found that, you know, I just, I wanted to build things. Yeah, but the school was set up, you're learning how to design and that was about it. And I talked to my professor, said, I I want to go do construction. I'm going to leave school and go do this. And he said, well, we have a new program, construction engineering technology, and that's going to be exactly what you're talking about. And so I stayed in school and was in the first graduating class from Montana State in that degree. And that's what it's all about, is taking a design background, knowing that, and then building. And it's how you put together pricing, and you know it, we learned the full gamut in college because our professor actually came. I call it from the real world. Most academics of, they're just academic types. Yeah, uh, yeah. He had been a project manager for uh, Kiwit, and he uh, our estimating class we studied was a project he actually built, and so wow. we had to go oh. price it and compare our final pricing at the end of the quarter was against his actual budget on what it cost.
0: How
2: close
0: close were you? uh,
2: We were only about 300,000 over his budget, which was the requirement. If you went under his budget, your grade went down because you were losing money. (laughs) (laughs) We did it in a team of five um, within our group and we all took different parts. He said, this is how it's done in the real world. And that's what he always taught. And all the engineers, the professors we had at the school, there were 28, and 24 of them had their doctorates, but the majority of them had actually been working out in the real world, and that's all the classes. A lot of the classes they taught, they used real-life examples on projects they had worked on, road design, and you know, here's here's quarries, 11 miles apart. Here's the road mix design. Okay, what's the best way to do this, and come up with it.
0: What what a great way! Of, uh, what way of great great way of getting your degree? Great education.
2: Yeah, it was. It was a good start.
0: Very good. And then you went from that and then you went in, uh, into the Army as the, I think you were a captain.
2: Yeah, I made captain. I had an Army ROTC scholarship uh, paid for my schooling. And then so went into the Army and I did work in a combat heavy unit, uh, a combat engineer unit, you know, advanced to the degrees and ended up getting out because within that, although I loved the service, I didn't get to build things. It was military stuff and go blow things up and yeah. uh, you know people dictating your career that you only talked to for a minute and a half and said, "Oh, you'll make full colonel in 24 years." But if you're not enjoying it, okay, yeah. I enjoyed the people. I actually didn't enjoy. I couldn't do what I wanted to do, and that was to build things, and that's why I got out of the service.
0: Very good. But I'm sure you learned quite quite a bit uh, within within your time there as well.
2: Oh. Oh, yes. Um, I mean, the different roles I had, that was one of the deals was uh, a couple of the, I had some great mentors within the military. In fact, I still keep in touch with several of them. But it was, you learn how to plan. One of the things the Army teach you how to do is to plan. And the service was where scheduling started, CPM scheduling. So you learn how to, and I was a battalion operations officer, and you're trying to plan a whole organization You plan project schedules, where troops are gonna be, when the materials need to be there. So it was a great basis of learning to take back to construction in the real world again. Here's all this capability I have of doing this at a very young age that most people don't see until they get five, 10, 15 years into their career. I was getting it like in year two.
0: Yeah, you're, you're way ahead of the game. And and that that's the key. I mean, if you're in a design-build project and you can actually think about those things at the design stage, I mean, surely it's better off for, for the project.
2: Well, yeah, you learn to really think ahead. And having been in construction so long, I mean, I've always, and I learned from my troops and I've learned from the people in the field and the construction companies I work for, because those are the frontline people, the subcontractors. I learn from them. They tell me the best ways to do things and things to look out for. So you're always learning in your career. If you ever, you, you can never stop learning. Yeah. Things always change, but you learn from the people that are doing it because they give you insights that you don't get sitting in an office. So you go out and visit the field, you know, walk a job, talk to them, find out what's right, what's wrong. And then in a design-build career, then when you're going back and you're looking at plans for the next stage, you remember those things. This didn't work right. We had problems. We ended up with change orders on this. This is what we had to do to fix it. Well, let's get it straight on this set of plans. That makes your job easier. The field construction is easier. And then you don't get change orders. And then yeah. the owner's have it. <laughs> yeah,
0: which is unusual, but but nice. Uh, yes. Because you have, you've, you've, you've held quite a number all of positions from senior project executive, pre-construction manager, estimating manager. What what, what, what was your favorite? I know that estimating and pre-construction, I think, is your passion, but how important, A, was the field experience that you got, but also at such a high level?
2: Well, I think it is. I, I love it all. That's the deal. I love design build. I, I don't like hard bid work. Um, I actually don't like most government work if it's not design-build because I, I don't think I bring value to the table and the team that I, you know, that works for me. Um, that's why I like design-build, and I really like taking it as one of the, my bosses described me as a master builder, able to take, develop a budget from a sketch on a napkin and take it through the design stage and actually go build it and bring it in a quality project on time or ahead of schedule and within budget and deliver everything that the owner wanted. That's what I love to do. Yeah. The gist of, and he's the one who asked me basically to drop doing the construction And a statement is, I can find more project managers I could shake a stick at. I can't find people like you that know the whole process and can get it to that stage and manage that because managing your costs is done early on in the pre-construction process that's when you're allowed it's easier to make changes you're not redesigning and slowing down the design process if you paid your design team and then you figure out you're way over budget halfway through then you're going you're going to have delay and you're going to spend money redesigning your you know the plans and that's yeah. going to slow everything down and if you don't do it or you do it too late it's major changes to it or you're going to end up with a bunch of change orders out in the field yeah and so yeah. i mean I've got kind of a knack for that. And so that's what I've been pretty much ever since then. That's why I've stayed more on the pre construction side except when I went to be a project executive and oversee the whole thing, including yeah. the pre con and the, and and the construction side of it
0: very good and then the design build it seems to be coming back into fashion it's becoming sexy again design and build after after being being kind of um a lot of competition other methods of doing things but design build seems to be now the preferred choice of doing things what are the real real key advantages of doing design build instead of something else
2: well when you're doing design build the key is Again, I've worked for a lot of developers, so it's all in-house knowing exactly what they want and trying to design to what they want and having your standards in keeping with them. And once you do that, it makes the whole process of construction easier because you're taking all that knowledge you've had, you know, which subject you can use, what is the best method for doing it, for building something in the quickest time at the best cost available. And that's the key of design build Um, And when we're doing this, we hire outside third. you know, typically two of the companies, we had in-house architects. Most of the companies have outside architects and engineers. When you have in-house, they know those standards and they stick to them. And that makes it easier when you're pricing and working in the field because things aren't changing. Uh, When you use third party, you need to make sure that you're getting them your standards and how you do things because what we're doing on where we're doing that right now is we give them our standards and say, this is how we do things and this is how we want you to use these details in the projects because that's what works for us. That's what our subs say is most effective and it proves out and it provides the quality we want in our projects. And so that's that whole key is controlling that from the very get go from the beginning, just. This is how we do things, and we're going to keep doing it this way because it works. Now, at the same time, you still have to be open when new products come along to look at them that change and may provide that. So you never want to say never, but it's you want to do testing on something when you start doing changes to say, we're going to try this on this project, look at it and see how it goes. And do we want to adapt that going forward into our process and how our our standards are? That's the beauty of design build. You're able to do that and deliver, typically you can deliver projects quicker in design. Again, you have standard details you're always using and the construction process and the construction schedule is typically faster because of that. And you can actually stage start early. Okay, I'm gonna start my earthwork and utilities, get those going while they're finishing up the plans on the actual building you're gonna be putting on the site because you know what you're going to be doing. So you're allowed to do that easier in design build than you are if it's a design, bid, build process.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yes. and you, you touched on it recently with, with a couple of contractors that you work with, with the architectural for in-house that's that's really important um i do know that the, the guys down there beside you in dallas the Beck group that was something peter beck learned very very early on when the, the company nearly went bust because he didn't have control he didn't have the people in house and didn't didn't have everything in place he had to rely on other people so he just said right this is the way we're going to do it we're going to become as fully integrated as possible and he brought the architects in-house. There's not many firms that, that that do that, but I think it is an advantage.
2: Right, it is. I mean, I've worked for firms, like I said, we had in-house design capability. In fact, I ran when our Had a person upstairs left, our lead business development guy was the registered architect, but he was on the road all the time. So in addition to my duties of being operations manager and that, I went up and oversaw the design department for nine months (laughs) and learned a lot in that process. And so it made me a better estimator and a project manager because I understood the details. But then I was also to take to the design team, I took them out to the field. Because most of it's surprising uh, and it has gotten worse over the years. I call them CAD jockeys now. They don't like it. <laughs> um, but it's true. Yeah. If they think it's in the system, that's the detail and that's the way it's supposed to be done. Yeah. Well, I took them out to the field and gave took them to a lunch and we walked a couple of the projects. And then I showed them what we actually had to do in the field to make it work and how the detail that they had was something they just pulled out. And so that was what I did over that nine-month period, I basically, hey, these details we don't do all the time, just store them. We're going back to the, the details we've always used because 80% of the details never change typically on a project that if you're building the same type of project, apartments, a car dealership, an industrial warehouse, whatever it may be, you're using the same details. Yeah, And, mm-hmm. you, and then 10% of the time, you may have to adapt it because of a specific site condition, and then that maybe that five to ten percent, you might have something unique you haven't come across before that you have to come up with a figure out the new detail for it. And then in the same way, it's into the pricing as well. It's something you may not have seen. So because of that, so you have to work hand in hand with the design team to make sure that this detail they're coming on, one, it's practical, it's cost efficient and it can actually be built <laughs> yeah
0: exactly and and, and funny the, the, the same is does it, the same go with your actual estimators that you bring on because you've managed quite a, a lot of estimators throughout your career the same do you bring the estimators on site do you give them site experience if they haven't had it or do you prefer bringing them in with site experience
2: um I, i've done both um I typically find that people who have some site experience adapt a little quicker, and I always, uh, I basically, I make sure my estimators are always being continuously trained and updated, Uh, you know, hold weekly meetings or bi-weekly meetings. We go visit job sites and walk and talk with our field teams to say, did we miss something? Is something wrong? Is there a detail we missed? Because we're in a pre-construction team. We are the eyes for construction mm-hmm. and if we can catch it in the design stage we can get it corrected and then they don't have to do rfis out in the field and end up with change orders on doing that so it's that whole deal you 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 train you're always continuously training and learning your team yeah. and as i kept i tell everywhere i've been i'm training them to take my place
0: yeah that's my yeah. job
2: as their mentor and their leader to train them to someday take over my position
0: and, and that's, that's fundamentally why the Preconstruction Podcast exists. It's about knowledge retention. Obviously, we're not going to be able to download everything from your brain today, but <laughs> it's, re- it's really about understanding what makes you good and letting the next generation, the guys now are in college, they're just graduating, maybe they're in an internship, they, they listen to this, they, 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 they listen, they learn, and they take it on board and they maybe adapt some of their work so that they they become better estimators or better pre-construction managers. Um, So that's good because the thing about you as well, as much as your design build experience, you've done all sorts of projects, both nationally and internationally. Give me an idea of how difficult it is doing international projects.
2: Well, international is, uh, most of the work I did uh, was government work. for the federal government, uh, we built the U.S. embassy in Bangkok, bid some other projects in Egypt, embassy in Hong Kong, and you know, and then we had uh, public uh, transportation work in the Philippines that we bid and road work in Cambodia. It's a different, total different mindset, and that was kind of where my training in the army about thinking ahead really came, uh, gave me a big advantage. That thinking farther down the road, because in international work, it's logistics, you're shipping, when you're doing government work for the US government overseas, the Buy American Clause is in effect. And so you have to buy American product and ship it overseas. But at the same time, the State Department gives you exemptions to to purchase locally. So you have to understand that, and the rules of the game uh, for doing that. So, and for instance, when we were building the embassy in Bangkok, Uh, When you start, you think I can just, I can get my materials delivered. They're just, you know, I can go get drywall from my local distributor, you know, 10 miles down the road. Well, uh, drywall for that project is about a six to eight month lead time from getting the, the RFI, you know, your submittal done and approved. Okay, then you purchase it. You have to ship it to the port and have it be inspected by the U.S. government before you can load it on the ship and send it over to the port. And then we're sitting and it was a four day, 45 day shipping time from New Orleans to Bangkok. And then it could be two to three weeks for it to clear customs in Bangkok before it got to your job site. And so you're talking, I have to get this on board and buy this out basically six to eight months actually for these little bits of material and whatever you're doing and then multiply that across everything for with on the project and going through and making sure when anything that included shop drawings uh, the door submittal uh door and hardware submittal and stuff like that my door and hardware submittal that book was uh it was three different books uh three different six inch binders between what how they put together the door and hardware schedule wow. to go through wow. on that and the State Department was amazed. That was I actually have still kept a copy of that because of the notes they put on it that they said they had never seen one like that. Now, I didn't do it. It was my contractor that put that together. No, it wasn't me. He said, look, I'm doing this. This is how we do it. And we could go through every door when we shipped it and it got there. All the hardware was already labeled with that specific door number within the building. So they could wow. just go Ooh. in and pick this box, and that was all the hardware that was needed for that door when they went to go put it in place. They didn't have to go get parts and pieces. It was all in an individual box.
0: Wow, so it was stupid it, proof, really.
2: Yeah, and, 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 and that's the other thing about what we do is the relationship with our vendors and our subcontractors is so important in pre-construction because that's where we learn from them how to do things and how to do them right or we can give them guidance from what we learn from other groups and, you know, on now, doing this, on other projects.
0: Now, I'm just thinking from a subcontractor, subcontractor point of view, Would I mean there's obviously a lot more work in building an embassy in Hong Kong than there is building any building 100 yards down the road or 10 miles down the road. Does the price differ, I would imagine?
2: Oh, well, yeah. I mean, when you're doing international work, it's totally different. Um, some of your work is done overseas. Uh, you typically find a, a, a local labor force or what we did in Bangkok. We partnered with uh, a large general contractor from Bangkok okay. because we a lot of the work you do actually ends up being self performed especially in third world countries. Mm-hmm. Um, there are secure parts in an embassy that only Americans can do, though. And so, but interestingly enough, there's a lot of uh, Americans, we call them expats, that live overseas and they thrive on doing that work and they love it. And there's a lot of them that lived in in Thailand. We had had a bunch in Egypt as well. And and so, you know, you find relationships. That's one of the things in international work. Every country is different. And we had arrangements in different countries around the world. And so when we went into a country we knew who our partner was going to be when we were bidding a project and putting it together. And basically they were always exclusive.
0: Yeah, of course. If so we weren't
2: going to be bidding a job, then they could go team with somebody else.
0: Very good. And then of course, listen, if you're an expat in that country, I've been an expat in quite a few countries and it'd be an honor to, to go and build the, the U S embassy in that country. So I'm sure you, you were, you're inundated on, on, on resources. Um, so that's fascinating. And, and then give me an idea. I mean, that, that kind of touches on another thing. We talked about it. You were two years a senior project executive with a mod, modular building company, one of the nation's largest modular builders. Um, give me an idea on your thoughts on modular building. Um, that was in 2007. How it's changed and what it looks like going forward.
2: Well, interesting enough, it was a. Um... It was a unique experience, I'll say that. How (laughs) I got into it was, uh, into that world, was they wanted to become a general contractor so they could control their own destiny, just kind of like you talked about Beck and them wanting to control their own destiny. Well, they wanted to do things the same way. That's why I I left a general contractor and went there to head up, be the head of their construction uh, on that. Uh, As it turned out, they changed their mind their venture capital firm that came in changed their mind on it uh, and said, no, you make more money as a sub than you do as a general contractor. And I think most general contractors can agree with that because I've seen roofers and uh, driving a Lamborghini and I've seen the boats (laughs) they have that I've never, (laughs) I could only dream about. Uh, So there may be something to that uh, side of it, but um, it was a great learning experience because it was a design build project that we did for Fort Bragg for a, Uh, a battalion brigade coming back from iraq and it was a design build contract one year duration from start of design to last building being turned over that was the schedule because they were coming back in june and we were awarded in july (laughs) and so we had to start design right away and go through and get the site work it was a a a joint venture uh with you know, a couple other firms on doing that, but we were the modular portion of that, which was actually the largest total dollar amount out of the whole project as well. Um, so we had various buildings, we had apartments uh, for the troops to live in, uh, and then we had the company and brigade headquarters, a dining hall, we had storage facilities, et cetera, we had to build um, to go through and do that. So it was overseeing that and three different plants from three different parts of the country, being shipping from Texas, Two of them were in North Carolina where it was at, um, but they each did different things within that. So it was very challenging um, and and working through on that, but we, we got it done. But one of the things learned about within there and the process we had, when you ship long distance when it's expensive and things as tight as you make them in the plant, shake loose. And so we ended up spending a lot of time working reworking project and ours were all done basically uh, on wood and and that in order to meet their budget that they were aiming for um, you can build them out of steel stud frame and steel base and stuff like that as well uh, that is a more solid product and ships better uh, when it does that when you come into doing modular it's um it depends on what you're going to build with it that's the whole point there. There are good projects for modular and there's some that really have challenges being modular uh, yeah. to go yeah. with that. And so that's that whole key. What is the right project and being able to do that.
0: And do you think there's a particular industry that's suited to modular?
2: Well, I, you can see that, um, it, it depends on the simplicity you want because You have limitations within modular that you're building in this rectangular piece that you have to fit all of these pieces together. Mm -hmm. And so in in order for it to be cost-effective, the fewer varying types of platform that you have, it's going to be easier to put together and less expensive because you've limited all these changes you're going to do for the ins and outs, the widths, Uh, And then you get back into, depending upon where you're shipping, there are restrictions on WISC that you can have on that platform. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so when you go to ship, uh, because one of the things we came across uh, when we were shipping from Texas to North Carolina, uh, we couldn't travel on Sundays going across South Carolina to get to North Carolina.
0: Yes. (laughs) Uh,
2: That type stuff. So there were limitations and sizes on the roads. Again, that affects costs and shipping routes because of the width of whatever that module may be. Mm-hmm. Length was typically never a problem. It's the width okay. um, because of the highway system and being able to get there. And, and so there's maps out there for truck routes and stuff like that, avoiding those places and, and the heights as well on what are you doing for shipping and what type of platform are you shipping on, shipping on a flatbed, shipping on a, a real low boy, if you, if you have a taller space and stuff like that. So there's limitations you have within that. Um, I come back, if you do simple multifamily, I think hotels and motels, it is great for that because if you go into a hotel and motel, think of how many different size units do they have? Not too many. So it's very simple and, and the ins and outs on the outsides typically aren't that much. Uh, or if you do, then that's where you end up putting a PTAC unit or something on that vertical that goes out so that you can have your louvers on the side, not facing out on the street or wherever it may be that you're doing. So there's good places, there, there's good projects, and there's not so good projects. Yeah. You could try yeah. and build them all, but if they're not very good, you're gonna have a lot more compatibility issues and it's gonna cost you a lot more. And retrofitting that stuff out in the field can really be a challenge if it's not designed right and put together right in the plants. To yeah, go through.
0: yeah. yeah I'm, I'm seeing quite a few and mergers and acquisitions in that space. Um, and and I, I can see general contractors or AEC firms leaning towards it more in the last two or three years. It's just, it's an interesting space that I see becoming, like the design and build, it's becoming sexy. Again, I think it's becoming more sought after from it, from an owner and developer's point of view.
2: I I agree with that, and again, as they come in, they need to come in eyes wide open to understand some of the pitfalls and and mainly the limitations of what's Mm -hmm. going to occur with that, and then they also have to deal with the local jurisdictions and their codes that they're going to have, and is their plan approved by the state, or, you know, so there's a lot of items that they have to deal with on the design side on that for having approvals on those. Mm -hmm. Luckily, we were, like I said, we were a national firm, and we had, we were virtually licensed in every state because basically our plant had to build to the code of whatever state we were shipping to. Okay. And so you have, you know, we did ship some up north, but the majority of ours was in the southwest, and then that's why we had a plant on the East Coast and a plant on the West Coast, and then they they handle the designs for those areas. Typically, we tried not to ship, again, long distance, because when you ship long distance, it's expensive to do that. And we're still, you know, construction is a cost-competitive market, so someone's got to want it or not want it and be willing to pay for it. So.
0: Very good, yeah. No, appreciate that. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, and then give us, an, give me an idea. Uh, listen, we know that estimating pre-construction, even construction, it's a stressful, stressful industry. What do you do to relax or, or kind of get away from it?
2: Um, oh, I love to golf. I don't golf enough, but you can take out a lot of frustrations on a golf course, just whatever it might be. It's in that little ball and you just whack away. <laughs> and it's amazing, you know, <laughs> yeah. that, you know. And you, get, and then when you hit those great shots, it just makes you, uh, you know. It's
0: all worthwhile. You feel yeah.
2: good about that.
0: There's always one or two shots. If you're anything like me, I'm a social golfer, but there's always one or two shots that brings you back the next week.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, it's, and you go back and, okay, well, it didn't go so well today. That's okay. You know, I can stop it, you know, relax afterwards. And I enjoy music and going to concerts, my wife and I, and that. So we, you know, do that and just try and, get those guys that we want to go see or there's some local I, I live in McKinney Texas and we have a great downtown historic district with live music and we'll go down and just listen to the bands we like and just you know live music in a bar being with friends that's as relaxing as it can get yeah there's, there's a
0: there's a great um, there's a great nightlife or that sort of entertainment in Dallas Texas I was there in January um, visiting a few clients and candidates, and I really was blown away. I didn't know what to expect. It was my first time in Texas, first time in Dallas, and I, I, it was good that I, did, I hadn't got any expectations. I mean, my understanding of Dallas was uh, J.R. Ewing back in back in the day on, on, on yeah. TV, but um, I was blown away by it, um, the culture, the differences. The people were incredible. I couldn't get over how friendly they were. Um, that was the one thing that stood out for me, uh, how friendly, the people were. they could do anybody that you asked anything for would do anything for you. And people were always there on hand to help you.
2: Yeah. I mean, that's Texas. I mean, uh, I grew up in Montana, but I've been in Texas pretty much all but three years courtesy of the U S army since I graduated and, uh, it's, we are, and, and, again, in the construction industry, it is a very small world. And I've always found that you treat people with respect, you help them, and they'll always be there to help you or give references if they can't do it. And that's the beauty of, you know, of our industry, I think, is it is a small world. Mm -hmm. You know, and so it comes back, you treat people right, you're always, they'll always take your phone call, they'll help you out and give you guidance even if they can't do it or they they know somebody that knows somebody that can yeah. can help you out yeah. when you run across something you haven't done or whatever, they yeah, give you some guidance.
0: So. Even nationally, it's a small world, uh, pre-construction and estimating. That's the community that we work within and it is so small. There's always somebody who knows somebody who knows someone. Um, and they're, they're, they really are great people. We, we get a lot of referrals. We get a lot of the network trying to help each other out. It's really enjoyable, enjoyable space. Um, And then the other thing, and I know that the people listening and and our audience will really, this is one of the questions, along with the design build side of it, that I wanted to ask you. You've been involved in modular. You've been involved on the client side, the developer side, the general contractor side, the construction management side. What are the differences between, especially that on the owner side and the developer side, and the general contractor construction management side? what are the difference when it comes to pre-construction and estimating?
2: Well, in my take on being on the general contractor side, you're looking out for your best interest normally. Uh, and you're looking to see what's in there and trying to find the gotchas. Um, and I'll say somewhat, it, it depends on the contractors and what type it's going to be if it's, you know, the venture that you're having, if it's public work, it's totally different because you're bidding those plans and specs and, and doing that, which is why I don't like, normally like public work. Um, you, it's like you're looking for the loopholes. Yeah. And, and, you know, and what you worry about on that side as a general contractor, if you see something that's wrong, do you want to go ahead and include the money for it or not to, to do it right? And a lot of a lot of the contractors want to do that. They want to do it right, but at the same time, they have to worry about, if I'm gonna add this money in there, will I win the job or not?
0: Yeah. And
2: that's that whole deal. If you're working on, I'll say, the owner side of this and development side, what you're looking for on my pre-construction pre- we're looking for those same things, what's missing, what's not right, and including that within our budget and trying to get the design team to include those items in there so it is built right and we don't get change orders later and so that's that slight difference in, in doing that the GC is worried about winning the job and what can he do now if depends on the type of arrangement that's tr- being tried within that if they have that working relationship with the developer you know they may come in and say well yeah here's our bid for this but here's things we saw that aren't included in our budget, we think you're gonna need, then as I, as a developer, I'm saying, okay, that's great. Oh, no, we have the money to cover that. Oh, that's, we didn't see that. We have to, you know, we need, we're gonna need that. So yes, we gotta get that into the budget and better to get it up front, because um, as as I've learned over time, again, with my subcontractors and everything else, better to get it up front because The ad later is going to cost you a lot more. Oh, and credit for not doing something and taking it out. uh, Typically, you're not going to get the credit you thought you were going to get because they're going to still typically keep their overhead and profit, and they'll just drop the cost of the materials. Again, our trades are different because I've spent the majority of my career here working in Texas, and we've been blessed with a very good workforce that's very cost competitive, and so... Um, I know there's differences if you're building in California, the times I built in California, and my counterpart uh, out there, when we talk about our differences, we design and build totally different in California in our company than we do in Texas. And cost comparisons, you know, their projects basically are two XRs. Um, and they, they end up building lots bigger because of a lot of that is location, the labor rates, you know, things like that, that you have in Southern California, that we don't have those issues here in Texas. And that's part of that issue, I think, when you come back to one of those states, when you come back to modular, where is modular really cost effective at? It's really cost effective in high cost labor areas, because it's done in a plant. When you're here in Texas, it's actually more of a challenge, because our field labor you get a lot more flexibility on what you can build. So you can build things that you can't build in modular and still be very cost competitive. Um, and so that the gap between in Texas, between modular and regular building is not as great as it is in high priced areas like California, New York, up, you know, up in the Northeast, stuff like that. And so again, when you're doing that and building modular timeframes and stuff like that as well, you know, modular should be quicker. Uh, you can get things done, you can do your dirt work and that while you're putting the, the buildings together. But again, we can do that here as well, that we're, we can start while we're waiting on our building permit, we can get an early start permit for our grading and utilities and get all that in. And then we get to start our construction. So uh, it, there's things you learn and ways to, to work around a lot of issues normally.
0: And, and that's that's on that's what it is it's about experience and if you haven't experienced those or dipped your toes in it or had a project that that's involved these these things then it's really difficult to, to hang your hat on it and I think you mentioned it in our previous conversation that it's really about the value add about the money that you can save companies when you're going into it because I think you've got a history of whether it be that meticulous the accuracy or, or the productivity yeah. of the the the, est, the estimator in or pre-construction department. How do you go in and increase the accuracy or increase the productivity of of, what's the secret of of an estimating team or a a department?
2: Well, the estimating teams are always different, depends on what you're actually building and, and, and doing on this. But as you come through, it's the guys that are working for you. What I've tried to hire over the years is people who have certain skill sets that I don't have. I want them to be the expert, not me. I can't be an expert in everything I'm kind of that jack of all trades. I've got the experience. I know where issues are at. But I try and find people who are really good at certain things. Uh, One of my guys used to work for a door and hardware company. I let him take a look at every project we get, (laughs) (laughs) the door schedule, (laughs) and he just eats it alive because of all the mistakes that are typically made. Um, And then I had one of my guys who used to work for a stucco and plaster company and drywall. He was my in-house expert on that. And if I saw <laughs> things I didn't, you know, we'd all kind of go to him, my team would. And so we have that, and, and to go through, I've got one guy who's really good at dirt work. And so I, my specialty's always been conceptual estimating that. Back in the napkin, put a number to it, and, you know, I've been, I've, there's something in my brain It just works a little different, I guess. You got the knack, and I'm, I've been really good at that, and not everyone is. Um, So you you try and train your people on that, and then within that, you cross-train within your teams to be able to help each other out, that expertise. Um, The company I'm at right now, what I did, I totally changed when I came on board, how they operated. They they switched. Whoever was available, they switched. And so typically one estimator, as a developer, we did budgets at every stage of the drawings. Concept, the SD, DD the permit GMP, and then normally after that we, you know, that's where most estimating stops at this stage. Um, Well, they did, someone was different. Well, what I ended up finding happening was we were missing things, and so I changed the order, and when I assigned an estimator to that project, he had it all the way through, and when he wasn't working on something, he could help one of the other guys on their projects in the same way So they would trade off. They could pitch in and help and do some of the takeoff and some of the scopes. But that guy was the lead estimator on that project beginning to end, and he knew everything. So as we went further into the project, he knew what decisions had already been made and when a new team, because some of our architects changed people, and then they want to go back and change something. And they say, no, 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 we can't do that. We VE'd that out, you know, in the last set of plans. It's not supposed to be there. That was taken out. It shouldn't be in this set. Well, they knew that, and then that kept our process cleaner on getting our projects done in time, the plans being better, and not having to go back and do VE again on something that was already changed, you know, because that gets frustrating because you feel you're wasting your, your time and effort, and we have short periods and durations, you know, for getting that done. So that, that was one of the ways of doing that. And like I said, I've tried to train them. And when we did takeoffs, we implemented a new takeoff system. Um, And when new people came on board, all the guys had learned it. Some had worked with it before. And so everyone had a different way of doing it. And when I had someone new come in, what I would have them do was go spend time working with each one of those estimators already on board, see how they use the software and then let them go figure out how. It, what best works for them because it it's not a one size fits all on software. People's brains operate differently, but at the end of the day, my mantra has always been: if you count it, you're going to put a number to it. Okay, <laughs> you, you you it's on the plans. Take it off. Yeah, you know, light poles. Figure out your square footage of paving. Count your number of doors. Whatever it may be. You you come up with these parameters and whatever we're building. You. It's different in multifamily than it is in commercial work for what you're doing. But all those rules still hold no matter what you build. You know, count it and figure it out and be able to put a number to it. I, you know, you talk to the subs and I have. So that's, that's, that's kind of what I've done and train them.
0: Yeah, and that's an interesting way. Of, it's almost given them the autonomy to to figure it out themselves, and given them the, the the responsibility to come to the right number um, without banging them overhead or micromanaging them. Because generally, if if there's a, a software or an on-screen takeoff or takeoff system, they are taught that's the way we use the the software. That's the way we do it here. Um so learn that way so that's that's interesting and how, how have you seen pre-construction technology evolving throughout the years how important is it now to to, to your job
2: oh it, it's very important um, i mean th- there's different aspects of what we're using uh, whether it's you know some of the programs now have their own takeoff software built in within it so you don't have to use ost um, and so when you actually go click on your item, it's there. You can see all the different pieces you measured. Uh, I used that on one project that I was doing out in California with a client to show them, here's what you actually had, and they were like, "Wow, we didn't realize that." And so that helped them better understand the pricing that I was putting in front of them What, what having that built that? into the software.
0: What program was that, or what software that, was that? That was WinEst. Very good. Okay
2: um it's it's been a few years since i used it i installed that at two companies okay. um and those companies today are still using it good. um and i've i've worked with timberline uh i've worked with uh, mc squared mkc's composer gold I've, I've worked with a bunch of different ones and of course everyone's default is excel
0: <laughs> i started
2: on lotus one two three so
0: <laughs> wow Very and
2: good. so but, but everyone you, you can do things and and a lot of people use Excel. Uh, I, I like it, but there's the, the deal about having a true estimating software is there's a lot less opportunity for mistakes. Yeah. And a things mistake. being left out or someone messing up a formula yeah. or whatever that may be. And so and I had one of those in my career. I mean, you learn from your mistakes as well. Yeah. I had a long time ago. That's why I've, I've you know, gone to using estimating software because I had a, a spreadsheet And it didn't pick up one of the lines out on my spreadsheet and my storefront didn't get rolled up into my overall budget. Wow. That was a design bill that I had to go explain to the owner. And we made it right. Uh, We dropped our fee and put it into the budget and helped offset those costs. But that was our responsibility as a giant design bill general contractor. But again, it's a lesson I learned and you learn from the good things and you learn from your mistakes. And the key is don't make the same mistake twice. <laughs>
0: That's it. You either win or you learn. Simple as that. Right. Yeah. And, and what, 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 if you were to to advise now a, a new client to implement a particular software, which would you choose?
2: I think well, will want to ask them what is our ultimate goal and what do they want to see from it? Mm. Um, because it's it's about the reports, we can, we can take off, you can estimate out of anything, but it's at the end of the day, what generates the right information, and in the roles I've been in in pre-construction, there's, we kind of have, if you work for developers, there's two things, you're working for the construction side on how they put together their budgets, but then you're also having to produce reports for the development side, and, and if you're a GC, you're really producing that budget to show to the client and how do they want to see it, mm-hmm. and you have those standard formats. So that's the first question I'd be asking them as to if what are we going to use this software for Mm -hmm. right now? Um, I mean, I'd be evaluating a lot of them. There's some, I wouldn't down at the bottom of my list. I'm just, I'm not doing Excel for Mm -hmm. basics. It's good to use for a little summary and, and get things to go put together, but I wouldn't be basing a, you know, uh, again, size of your company and what you can afford to spend and stuff like that. I, I still lean towards Winest, um, but Timberline's good, has some limitations, Beck Tech. There's others that you, you go to the estimating uh, pre reconstruction conference. You're going to have eight to 10 vendors that are there that are going to tout that they've got the, the latest and greatest. And it's not a one size fits all. That's the whole deal as a contractor. It's what do you do what do you specialize in what works best for you in pricing your projects
0: yeah so yeah. that's
2: that's the whole deal is what works best for you for the type of projects that you're working on and who your clients are
0: yeah and that's what it's about it's about having a niche or a vertical that you're happy with and specialize in you can you can kind of diversify to a certain extent but if you've got something that works and you're good at it then it, you can generally make a lot of money from it yep yeah. Excellent. Good. Well, listen, I think, uh, is there any advice just before we finish up, is there any advice that you would give your younger self? You've just come out of college, maybe a couple of years experience. Is there anything, We I mean, I don't want to say, did you make any mistakes, but is there anything you would advise a young estimator to do or a way of upskilling themselves um, to, to, to ensure that they become a, a really good top notch estimator?
2: Well, I would, advise them to take every opportunity to learn and ask questions, and definitely go to the field. Walk the jobs, especially ones that you've bid and put together, and see if you can go out at the various stages um, to see what's going on, and then ask questions of your team and of the subcontractors about it, and see how they're doing things, because that's going to make you understand better the plans you're looking at, when you go together and put together pricing and understand it, that's, and you got to continue to do that throughout your whole career. I mean, I, I still was taking my team out and walking jobs and I'd see stuff that I hadn't seen before, or I missed when I was overseeing the plans and looking at them. And it's, you continue to learn. That's the whole process, continue to learn. You know, you can go take classes or Uh, one of the societies AACEI or ASPE and learn from those from the meetings and within that then you network with other pre-construction people and Mm -hmm. we all have different backgrounds Um, and so you can you can learn from what they talk about on presentations and figure out can I adapt that to what I'm doing it didn't directly apply but is there a methodology that they had for using or some new product that they mentioned that they're using that you might be able to take into what you're building or whatever it is that you actually do you, you always you can never stop learning yes yeah. okay
0: is that is that your secret for maintaining your your level because you have been consistently chief estimator pre call manager project executive for 20 20 plus years what's the the core principles that you stick to or what's the secret
2: well that's tough um, I, I honestly, I guess it is that I'm always trying to learn and I always look at using what I've learned, how I can take what I've learned in, you know, like I learned from the military. I learned, you know, from when I ran the design department, how can I apply that knowledge to what I'm doing today to make it better mm-hmm. for, for my, the company I'm working for or the client I'm building for to do that. And, and when you do that and people see that, they recognize it. Um so I mean I've always been like I said you you touched on I've always been highly compensated and stayed at where I was at. Um and it's you learn and you and when you learn that knowledge and you use it to your best of your ability, you can stay up there and do that. But again, it's treating people fair and being respectful and being a true leader, because people will see that when you have a pre-con team and you're their leader. Um I've never had anyone that I've had. That they'll still come back to me and call me and ask me questions and thank me for helping them on their career. I mean, our industry goes up and down, so yeah, you, you win people, you lose people, you know, depending upon the economy, like we're going through right now, you know, there's a lot of good people you know that are going to be let go that probably shouldn't be, but you hopefully you've trained them well and they can find a good job and um, continue the growth in their career. And the deal is we reach out and help each other out when we're doing that as well.
0: And that's the key. That, that is literally the key. It's collaboration. And there's never been a more important time to look after each other. And I think you touched on it. And this is that's what this is about. The pre-construction estimator is about getting stories out there. And if someone picks up or five or six people pick up on two or three things that we've discussed today that makes them a better estimator a better pre-construction manager, then we've succeeded.
2: Yep. I mean, this go back. I mean, I did that. And one of the guys in the field told me just to stop on by the job. When I first started estimating uh, for the one company, he hired me to estimate. And he told me if I ever went to a job site, this was the owner, he'd fire me. Whoa. Okay. He wanted me to stay in the office and just estimate. Well, I was looking at plans and I had questions. So I called the superintendent and I talked to him and asked him about it. And then it was on my way home. I went by the project site because of where it was at. I could drive by it on my way to and from work. So I'd stop in on my way in and at the way home, look, walk the job. And then I'd call them and ask them questions. And that's how I was starting to learn. And that's where I'm going. That's why I believe in doing that today is because I learned more doing that. And one time I just asked him, I said, Johnny, I, that doesn't look right to me up there. And uh He says, you're right. That's not right. You got a good eye for that. He said, and it's like, if it doesn't look right, this was his adage as a superintendent. If it doesn't look right, it probably isn't, (laughs) you know? And so that's, that's that adage to teach people and to go through. And that's, you know, that's what I try to do and ask because it's how you learn. I mean, there's new products out there. And so when you walk and you don't see it, it doesn't look right. Then you can ask questions about it,
0: you know, absolutely about
2: that door trim or this hardware or, you know, a new way of putting down flooring, you know, whatever it may be, or paint. Everything is always changing, or how they're doing concrete. You know. So you you're can you continuously learning.
0: That's right. Yeah. And and if you don't ask questions or you don't collaborate, then and that's that's I think the, the historical way of estimators going into a dark room, uh, into a war room and just throwing out a pre-construction or an estimator, it's just not the way to do things anymore. Um, the 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 extroverts now asking questions being creative um being collaborative it's it's that to me i see as the best estimators right now
2: yeah i mean there are times i had to close the door to get things done oh
0: absolutely <laughs> yeah, yeah. There, there,
2: there are those occasions but yeah. normally you can yeah you, you know whether it's the cubes are going through and you know in my role i would just always go around and just talk to my guys in the morning just visit each one of them what you know what are they doing today and what issues do they have? Can I help with and, and to go through and do that and then check back with them later today, the see how things are going. And, you know, again, it's personal contact and taking care of your people. I'll, I mean, I learned that in the service. You take care of your people, they take care of you. I learned that lesson. I still do it today. And that's, it. that's, that's part it. of that being a good leader is take care of your people. That's training them. And, and, you know, sometimes you got to be harsh on them. That's part of it. But, you help them learn and you make them better people, and better estimators.
0: Clayton, I love it. Thank you very much. We'll finish on that, taking care of your people. Thank you very much for coming on the Preconstruction Podcast. Th-
2: thank you for having me Gareth. I enjoyed it and I hope it's valuable to some people out there in their careers. Thanks Clayton.
0: A huge thank you to Clayton Meyer for that insight into his career so far. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Since the recording of that podcast, Clayton was laid off due to the impact of COVID-19 in Dallas, Texas. So if you or any of your network know of anyone in the Dallas or Fort Worth area looking for a senior design-build pre-construction candidate, please reach out to me on LinkedIn or call or text on 646-503-5594.